So this evening we continue in our series through John's Gospel, and we're in John chapter 1. We come to the end of John's prologue, this op- these opening words to his gospel that take up verses 1 through 18. The focus this evening will be verses 15 through 18, but I'd like to begin reading at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. It was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on Johnny, concludes his comments on this section of Scripture with words that I want to use for the introduction to this evening's sermon. J.C. Ryle writes, And now, after reading this passage, can we ever give too much honor to Christ? Can we ever think too highly of him? Let us banish the unworthy thought from our minds forever. Let us learn to exalt him more in our hearts and to rest more confidently the whole weight of our souls in his hands. Men may easily fall into error about the three persons in the Holy Trinity if they do not carefully adhere to the teaching of Scripture. But no one ever errs on the side of giving too much honor to God the Son. Christ is the meeting point between the Trinity and and the sinner's soul. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which sent him. John 5, verse 23, end quote. Verses before us this evening present from a number of angles the supremacy of the Word who became flesh, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in these verses, John brings up yet again the role of John the Baptist as a witness about the Word, and specifically John's witness of Jesus being greater than him. Second, there is what John calls the fullness of Christ. And then third, Jesus is contrasted with Moses in a way that indicates that Jesus is superior. And finally, while no mere mortal man has ever seen God, Jesus as the word was with God and is God and is therefore uniquely qualified to make God known. John ends the prologue to his gospel by bringing us back again 
to the reality of Jesus as the word, revealing and explaining God to us. And so the four points of this evening's sermon correspond to the four ways just mentioned by which John sets forth Jesus' greatness. So we begin first with John's witness. John the Apostle brings up yet again the role of John the Baptist as a witness to Jesus. It's interesting to note the amount of time that John the Apostle devotes to writing about John the Baptist. There are the words of verses 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And now he brings up John the Baptist again in this parenthetical statement that temporarily interrupts the flow of thought between verses 14 and 16. John the Baptist was apparently considered by John to be a very significant character in the history of redemption. And Christ himself endorses this perspective when he is quoted in Matthew 11, verse 11, as saying, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, that the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. We notice that Jesus does not praise John the Baptist in an unqualified way. Probably the ones who are least in the kingdom of heaven mentioned here are the apostles and New Testament preachers of the gospel that came after John, who certainly had a greater understanding of Jesus and his work of salvation than John the Baptist. Nevertheless, John was a unique and important prophet in the history of redemption. He was great in his own right. He came as a kind of bridge between the Old and New Testaments. He was the subject of ancient prophecies foretelling this messenger who had come from God preparing the way for the coming Christ. He was the Elijah to whom uh, to, to come of whom Malachi spoke. John the Baptist's conception and birth were accompanied by miracles. And John certainly had a clearer revelation of the Messiah and his work than the prophets before him. It's also the testimony of scripture that John's ministry of calling sinners to repentance and then baptizing those who responded all as part of preparation for the Messiah's coming, had a very profound effect. Many came to faith through his ministry, so that John was widely known, even had a hearing with King Herod. Many thought he was the Messiah himself. Though not the Messiah, John met and spoke with and even baptized the actual Messiah, Jesus Christ. So John the Baptist certainly had a privileged role in redemptive history. Despite John's own greatness and importance, what is abundantly clear in Scripture is that John the Baptist considered Jesus to be his superior. In verses 6 through 8, the Apostle John avoids any confusion about John's identity by stating that John the Baptist was a man in contrast with the Word who was with God and was God. John the, the, the mere man came as a witness to bear witness about the light And the light, of course, is Jesus. The goal of John's ministry as a witness was that all might believe in Jesus the Word. The Apostle John is very careful to clarify John's place. He was not the light that came to bear witness about the light. He was not the Word, but a man sent from God. 
John's own personal goal in ministry was not to have people rally to, to him, but to have people believe in Christ. With verse 9, the Apostle John went on to highlight the words rejection by the world and by his own people, noting that those who did receive him by believing in his name are those who have been given the right to become children of God. The Apostle went on to explain what it is that the word did that we might become children of God. The possibility of this saving relationship with God is in the way of the words incarnation. And he, he became man in a way that left intact his divine identity and glory as the Son of God. He came as one full of grace and truth. These words refer to his saving work. Grace is his unmerited favor to sinners, and truth is his fulfilling the realities of the types of the Old Testament. Old Testament sacrificial system. So grace and truth were all about the sacrifice of himself on the cross in the place of sinners, so that those who receive him in faith become children of God. It's after the apostles' declaration of Jesus having glory as of the only Son from the Father and being full of grace and truth that the apostle turns again to writing about John the Baptist. Again, he highlights John as a witness, which means he's not the word become flesh, but one who came to testify about the actual word who is Jesus. This reminds us that at that particular time in history, apparently there were many who elevated John the Baptist to the point of thinking he was the Messiah. And the apostle goes out of his way to point out that John himself did not give credence to those ideas. He was constantly pointing people away from himself to Jesus Christ. Specifically, John the Baptist is quoted as saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John was apparently talking to people about Jesus after Jesus had come on the scene and had been baptized by John and Jesus had started his ministry and John wanted them to remember what he had said early on in his ministry of preparation when he was calling people to repentance and to faith in the coming Messiah before Jesus had actually come on the scene and been baptized. And John reminds him, this was he who I was talking about. I told you that he would come after me and yet would have a higher rank than I. John the Baptist went on to explain what accounts for the higher rank, because he was before me. The language is somewhat cryptic, but perfectly understandable in the light of eternity and in light of what John has already said about the word. Someone has summarized John the Baptist's words this way, My successor is my superior, for he was my predecessor. I'll, I'll say that again. My successor is my superior, for he was my predecessor. Normally in a teacher-pupil relationship, the successor is inferior because he is the student. He's the follower. He is the disciple who comes after the rabbi. It would be like what we find at seminary or in college. The students rank below the professors. The students are the learners who are to respect the knowledge and wisdom of their teachers who are experts in their field. The Apostle John points out how this typical scenario was upended with the relationship that John the Baptist had with Jesus. And this is by John's own testimony. John was not at all confused over the matter or hesitant to set things straight about who was greater. 
John the Baptist, yes, he came before Jesus in terms of when their ministries started, but even so, Jesus is of a higher rank. And though this is not the normal and expected way of things, that the younger would be considered the greater, it was true in this case. Jesus was the one to be received. Jesus was the one to be believed in. Jesus was the one full of grace and truth, which all makes sense when we think about and understand that profound statement of John's, because he was before me. Jesus existed in eternity as the Son of God, the Word. Jesus was before all of us. He was in the beginning with God and was God. Jesus is John's creator. Jesus is our creator. Jesus is the source of all of the revelation that John knows. Jesus is the one to whom John was pointing. John was preparing the way for Jesus. As popular as John was, as important as he was in his own right, he set aside any self-promoting desires and his insistence that Jesus be glorified as the God and Savior that he is. John testified to Jesus' superiority. John will be quoted just a few verses later here in John chapter 1, a saying of Jesus, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So that is the witness of John to Jesus' superiority. We also have here in our text Jesus' fullness. It's apparent that the main flow of thought continues in verse 16 from verse 14. Verse 14, remember, ends with Jesus described as full of grace and truth. And verse 16 picks up on that theme and explains further what is meant in describing the word this way. In verse 16, we are given this great declaration, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So what is meant by the fullness of Christ and what is meant by grace upon grace? Again, to quote from J.C. Ryle, he says, It is Christ alone who supplies all the spiritual wants of all believers. It is written that of his fullness have we all received, and grace for grace. There is an infinite fullness in Jesus Christ. As St. Paul says, it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Colossians 1.19 In him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2 verse 3 There is laid up in him as in a treasury a boundless supply of all that any sinner can need, either in time or eternity. The spirit of life is a special gift to the church and conveys from him, as from a great root, sap and vigor to all the believing branches. He is rich in mercy, grace, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Out of Christ's fullness, all believers in every age of the world have been supplied They did not clearly understand the fountain from which their supplies flowed in Old Testament times. The Old Testament saints only saw Christ afar off and not face to face. But from Abel downwards, all saved souls have received all that they have had from Jesus Christ alone. Every saint in glory will at last acknowledge that he is Christ's debtor for all he is. Jesus will prove to have been all in all." It's important to notice how letting Scripture interpret Scripture provides us with a full-orbed understanding of Jesus' fullness, namely his fullness as deity, completely God, lacking nothing of deity but being fully God, enabling him then to have a fullness of wisdom, knowledge, grace, and truth. 
in his work of saving sinners. The fullness of Christ means he's lacking in nothing of these things and is thus uniquely qualified to meet the strict demands of God's justice and save us. John says that from Jesus we have all, that as we believers have received grace upon grace. Grace is unmerited favor. It's a word that really encompasses any and all of the great benefits, the, the, the benefits of salvation that are, that are ours in Christ. I think that's clear enough. What is not as clear, perhaps, is what John means by grace upon grace. The preposition he uses has engendered some discussion among commentators. The conclusion that I have reached is that there are two ways of understanding this preposition that are each fitting in their own way. So first of all, one interpretation says that the preposition has the idea of substitution. So that the idea is one grace being substituted with another. Hendrickson, I don't know if you've heard of uh, William Hendrickson, he apparently did his doctoral thesis on the interpretation of this Greek word that's used here and insists that the scriptural proof is that it does mean substitution And he translates the phrase as grace in the place of grace. And the idea is that in our lives as believers, as we experience the love of Christ, one manifestation of the unmerited favor of God in Christ is ours, and we are experiencing it, and it's hardly gone when another one arrives. It's grace upon grace. Hendrickson offers the helpful analogy of this grace upon grace being, quote, like the waves that follow one upon another on the seashore, one taking the place of another constantly. So in Christ, we are never left without grace. When one gracious act of God has taken place and has had its desired effect, Christ brings yet another one so that we are constantly experiencing his grace, constantly being blessed spiritually. Another interpretation understands the preposition to mean instead of grace. Um, Grace instead of grace. And and admit that sounds odd, um, but there is a credible explanation for this translation. Um, This interpretation requires a flow of thought involving a very close connection with verse 17 that follows, where it says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so the idea behind the expression grace instead of grace is that we now have the grace of Jesus instead of the grace of the law. And this is actually a very covenantal and reformed view of the Old Testament. We believe that the law given through Moses is moral. Think of the Ten Commandments. It's ceremonial. Think of all of the laws regulating worship at the temple. And also judicial, think of the civil life of the Old Testament people of God. And while the law in all three aspects has never been able to save, the law has always been viewed as an important component of the covenant of grace by showing man his sin, by pointing him to salvation in Christ. I want to speak about those two things here for a moment. So the Bible is clear that the law doesn't save, the law never has saved, which is why often we read of the law contrasted with grace. So Romans 3 verse 20 says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Romans 6.14 states, For sin will have no dominion over you, 
since you are not under law, but under grace. Believers, we are, the apostle says, we are, we are not under law, but under grace. And so some have interpreted that to mean that as believers, the law now serves us no purpose. In fact, it's, it's, it's something evil that is to be rejected, that if we, in fact, decide that we need to be under the law in the sense of, uh, of striving to be obedient, we're forgetting that we're saved by grace. And so there's this kind of rejection of the law. But Peter, uh, that is, Paul will later say in Romans 7, 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And so he's, he's bringing out that we're not rejecting the law altogether. There's a place for the law in our lives as children of God. We just need to correctly understand the role of the law. The law has never saved Many people think that in the Old Testament, people were saved by obedience to the law of Moses, and they will say, now we're saved by grace in the, in the New Testament. So to no longer be under law but under grace is explained as meaning that once people were saved by the law and they were under the law, but now we are not under the law, we are saved by grace. No. Sinners have never been saved through the law. The meaning of being under the law is that Um, prior to faith in Jesus Christ. Sinners are under the law in terms of being under its condemnation. Once we are made new creatures in Christ, once we have repented of our sins, once we have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and are justified, the law no longer has jurisdiction over us. We are under the protective umbrella of God's grace. Nevertheless, the law still has a role in our lives. It's how you express your love for Christ. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love Jesus, you're going to want to know his law. You're going to want to obey him. The law tells you what that obedience involves. The law is also a reminder to you and me of our need for Christ. It it shows us our sin. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7, verse 7, in the latter part of that verse, he says, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. As believers who still fall into sin, you and I need to know God's law so that we might see our sin and flee from it. So the law doesn't save, but it does have a positive role in our lives, even as believers saved by grace. But is it right to think of the law in some sense as grace? The Bible is unmistakably clear that the people of God in the Old Testament who received the law through Moses were saved by grace through faith. While the law itself couldn't save, it served the purposes of grace, even as the moral law still does today. And the way it did that was by pointing God's people to the saving realities in Christ, as Galatians explains. Galatians 3, verses 23 and 24, it says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. It's not saying that the Old Testament saints weren't saved by faith. It's pointing, the the contrast is between us as those who have faith in the person of Jesus Christ. We know who the person is that all of the Old Testament prophecies point to. Before Christ came and before the people of God could, could put their faith in a known person, they were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. We are now people who, who know who Jesus Christ is. We know who the Messiah is. We know who our faith is to, be, is to be in. And so we are now justified by faith. 
in the Christ who has come. And so this idea that is behind the second interpretation and, which, and that is behind the translation of grace in place of grace is that the grace of the Old Testament was replaced with the grace of the New Testament. And that's a biblical idea. Both dispensations were part of the covenant of grace. They were filled with grace, but that grace took different forms, as John explains in verse 17. So take your pick, grace upon grace, grace instead of grace. Either way, the text highlights the grace of Jesus as he fulfilled the realities of the Old Testament types and earned a salvation for us that is all of grace, a salvation we do not deserve. Every blessing we have as God's people is grace, and it is Jesus, not the law, who is the source of this grace, as John goes on to explain. He writes, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And that word for that begins verse 17, tells us that there is a connection with what John has just been talking about. The idea is that from Jesus we receive his fullness in grace upon grace, that first interpretation. The point is that Jesus brought us the realities of salvation that the law could never deliver. This interpretation is designed to make it clear that in the law there is no grace to actually pardon and to help sinners. Remember how Jesus being full of truth means he is the fulfillment of the types of the Old Testament. He is the reality, and since the ceremonial law is only about types, it's not the truth, it's not the reality, as Jesus is. The law is preparatory to Jesus' coming. It reveals the need for a Savior. It foreshadows his work of deliverance, and this, and in this sense, serves faith, but the law is not itself grace or truth. And this is how the text is explained by those who see the grace upon grace entirely what Jesus gives through his saving work. All Moses could do was give us the law with no grace or truth. Jesus gave us both grace and truth and is our actual Savior. Hence, Jesus is superior to Moses. But those who understand verse 16 as referring to the grace of Jesus instead of the grace of the law of Moses are not as ready to speak as disparagingly about the law. They want to say that there was grace in the Old Testament law. God graciously used the moral law to show the elect their need of a Savior and the ceremonial law to point them to the saving work of the Christ to come. And so the law served the purposes of grace as a tool of salvation. But of course, the grace in Jesus is far greater. It's a superior grace, for there is a significant difference in trusting in the Christ to come and in trusting his actual person. It's different knowing him through types and knowing him as the reality. Yes, there is grace in both the Old Testament and New Testament, but the reality is in Jesus. Moses gave us the law that revealed Jesus pointed people to Jesus, but it could never itself atone for sin. It was gracious only in how it pointed people to Jesus. Only the blood of Jesus could actually atone for sin. Jesus has given us the realities of salvation as one full of grace and truth. Hence, Jesus is superior to Moses. Final verses here of John's prologue in verse This uh, final verse, verse 18, brings us back to what is really at the heart of the meaning, that Jesus is the word of God, namely that Christ has revealed God the Father to us. Jesus, as the Son of God, is uniquely qualified, able, and appointed 
to make God known to us. John begins with a declaration that puts everything in its proper perspective. No one has ever seen God. So how can we possibly know God in any depth if we haven't even seen him? But first things first, what does John mean by this statement? For it seems like if we've studied scripture and if you've read scripture, you might be thinking to yourself, well, wait a minute, there have been those who have seen God. And once we have that issue settled, it's a worthwhile question to ask, why is this the case? Why does John say here that no one has seen God? Why is it the case that we can't see God? I'd remind you of the words of Exodus chapter 33. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 33, I'm going to read for you verses 18 through 23. So Moses is speaking to God here in verse 18. And Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you will see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So what we learn is that Moses saw something of God's presence described as seeing God's goodness and glory. We are told that he was able to see God's back, but not his face. But then actually, what, do we, what about what we read earlier um, in Exodus 33, beginning at verse 7? I'm not going to take the time to read that, but you probably have a heading there in your Bibles, the tent of meeting. And in this section, we are, we are told about the interactions between Moses and God at the tent of meeting. We are told that the pillar of cloud would descend and would stand at the entrance of the tent, And the Lord would speak with Moses, quote, face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And this seems contradictory what is said uh, to what is just said a few verses later about Moses not seeing God's face. And so there are a couple of explanations that are offered. First of all, uh, some would say, well, Moses spoke with the angel of the Lord. And certainly the angel of the Lord was often associated with the pillar of cloud as well as the pillar of fire by night. And scripture tells us that this angel of Jehovah was God himself, but God in a physical form that we call a Christophany, a physical manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ. And so while Moses talked to God, when he talked to the angel of the Lord, he was not looking upon God in all of his glory. He was looking at a physical manifestation of God and not at God in all of the glory of his spiritual essence. So that's one explanation. Another one is that God spoke to Moses from the cloud. And the expression of them talking face to face doesn't mean that Moses actually looked into the face of God, but the idea is rather simply that they stood together and spoke to one another. But again, Moses did not see God in all of his glory. That glory was veiled by that cloud. Deuteronomy 4 verse 12, Moses is describing God's presence at Mount Sinai and he reminds the people of how they heard the Lord's voice but saw no form. 
Isaiah chapter 6, probably familiar with that vision that Isaiah has of the Lord sitting upon a throne. And we might be inclined to think that Isaiah saw God in all of his glory. And Isaiah certainly was in shock at the glory of what he saw. And he was uh, especially filled with a great sense of his sinfulness and explains, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord. And it's all in caps, which tells us, he's saying, I have seen Jehovah of hosts. Well, John uh, 12, verse 41, so in John's gospel later in chapter 12, verse 41, he says that Isaiah, quote, saw his, that is Jesus' glory, and spoke of him. So yes, Isaiah saw God. But did he see God's face? No, he saw the face of the word in a pre-incarnate state. But even that limited revelation was enough to floor Isaiah. He knew he was seeing God. And so now we can better understand the testimony of the New Testament about us not seeing God in a spiritual essence. I'm thinking of 1 Timothy 1.17, where it says to the king of ages, immortal, invisible. God is invisible to human eyes. 1 Timothy 6.16 tells us that God dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. And so John starts out in uh, chapter 1, verse 18, by stating, no one has ever seen God. What he means is no one has ever seen God in his invisible spiritual essence, which dwells in unapproachable light. Moses was able to see something of God's glory, but no mere human being has been able to see God in his fullness. But John goes on to explain there's an exception. The only begotten God has. I don't know if you caught those words there in here in John chapter 1, there in verse 18, when it says, no one has ever seen God, the only God. If you have a, an older version of the Bible, like perhaps the King James, it will say the, the only begotten God. The only begotten God. That's a unique expression, right? We, we expect it to say that, that for the text to talk about the only begotten Son of God. But it says, the begotten God. And uh, we find here that what John is doing is he is emphasizing yet again the deity of Christ. He is begotten, therefore the Son of God, but he's God. He is the begotten God. He's God and begotten at the same time. So clearly God the Son is in view here. That word begotten brings that to mind, but it also says who is at the Father's side. Literally, he is in the Father's bosom. So there's this distinction between Father and Son. And so naturally, Jesus being who he is and having the relationship that he does with the Father, he knows the Father. Being of the same essence of the Father reveals the Father. And when our text says that Jesus has made the Father known, it literally means literally says he is the exegete of God. You probably heard that word of that word exegete or exegesis, where it's, it's the word for explaining the scriptures, the meaning of scriptures, the meaning of, of what the text says. Jesus is the exegete of God. He explains to us exactly who God is, what he is. He knows God. He's able to give us a true knowledge of God. More than that, to see and to talk with Jesus as we look forward to doing one day, to see 
and to talk with him is to see and talk with God. To see Jesus is the closest we will get to seeing God in all of his essence, and it will be more than enough. Jesus is the only way that we as mere creatures can see God and live. And because the word became flesh, we can in Jesus see a revelation of God without being destroyed. So when you think of Jesus, you must think of one who is greater than all, greater than John the Baptist. He alone supplies our spiritual needs, being full of grace and truth. He is the fulfillment of the law, and he is the presence of God himself with us. There is none greater, none more deserving of your love, your faith, and your worship. As J.C. Ryle put it, no one can give too much honor to Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Great God and Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, who is your exegete, who explains and reveals you to us. Father, we thank you that he is able to do that, being your very son, being God. And so, Father, we we even pray to you this evening, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, acknowledging that you are one God in three persons, and thankful that you have revealed yourself through your Son who has become flesh. Father, we thank you that we will one day see Christ face to face, and in seeing him, as your word says, we'll have seen the Father. So, Father, we thank you for that. We are reminded this evening of your greatness, that we cannot even look upon you. You are so beyond us and so, so magnificent. But, Father, we thank you that you have, through Jesus Christ, made a way for us to know you and to be with you. And, uh, Father, we look forward to seeing you in the face of Christ one day. Lord, give us, we pray, more and more an awareness of the greatness of Christ. May he be at the center of our lives, of our desires, of our thoughts. May our love for him grow. May our trust in him grow. And uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.